title of tonight's message is, How Majestic Is Your Name? How Majestic Is Your Name? When you consider or study the natural realm closely, it produces two potential outcomes. Either it gives man hope or it makes man hopeless. Those are the only two possible or potential outcomes that come from studying the natural realm closely. It's interesting that these two divergent outcomes are based on the same inescapable observations and conclusion. So you come to the same conclusion, it's inevitable, regardless of what outcome it has in terms of your thinking. When you study the natural realm, there's these two inescapable observations that lead to the same conclusion, but either it's going to give you hope or it's going to make you feel hopeless. And the first observation is this, that the earth is very big. And the second is that the universe is vast, or you could say the universe is even bigger. Consider this. As I'm thinking about how majestic is your name, the natural realm is what helps to establish that. And you think about the size of even the earth. The earth's surface is 126 billion acres. So while you're finding your purpose in your 10 acres and you've got too much focus on your property and your home, which often can be the case, remember that in the big picture, the earth itself is 126 billion acres. It's 196.9 million square miles. The human population of which you are just one is estimated to be just under 8 billion people. There are 8.7 million species of plants and animals that the human race is occupying this earth alongside. Those are staggering numbers when you put them in perspective. You're not talking about hundreds or thousands or you're talking about billions. You're talking about millions and billions. And you're one small part of that. If you go bigger than that, so the first observation is the earth is big, it's real big. But if you go bigger than that and start looking at the universe that God created, that part of the natural realm, the universe makes the earth seem like a tiny speck. If you were to get a sweet deal on a lunar cruiser, you just went out shopping and you came across on Craigslist, a really great deal. You're like, man, I can have my very own lunar cruiser. And if you drove that lunar cruiser 150 miles an hour, nonstop, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it would take you 70 years to reach the sun. 150 miles per hour, every, all day, every day, year-round, for 70 years. The better part of your life would be spent just traveling to the Earth's sun. At 600 miles per hour, because you say, you know what, that's not a very fancy lunar, lunar cruiser if it only goes 150 miles per hour. How about if it was 600 miles per hour that you were traveling? If you traveled at 600 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it would take you 690 years to reach Pluto. And you haven't even left our solar system yet. So the better part of 700 years traveling at 600 miles per hour, and you wouldn't have traveled even the extent of a planet within our solar system. So those are the observations. Those are, those are facts. Those are, not, those are not observations that are really subject to debate. So then you're left with an inevitable conclusion. The inevitable conclusion is man is very small in comparison to the grandeur of the natural realm. 
in comparison to what we even know about creation, what we can observe about creation, man is infinitesimally small compared to that. So now again, there's two very different ways to respond to this inescapable conclusion. The first is that the man of faith finds hope because he realizes that despite how small he is and how grand the natural realm is, God still loves him desperately and personally. And so the scope of creation or the natural realm, in fact, reinforces his hope because he says, the one who made all of that loves me desperately. The one who made all of that loves me personally. So on one hand, it makes me realize how small I am. On the other hand, it gives me great hope because as a man of faith, I know the one who made it all and who made me. And that, that God, that same God, is interested in me and loves me and is providing everything that I need. Now what can I have? Hope, rest, peace. I can experience an inner tranquility, an absence of worry, because I see that God is in control. Now the unbeliever, in contrast, is hopeless as he observes just how small he is. The unbeliever sees how insignificant and irrelevant he is when he looks at the scale or the scope of the natural realm. So two very different outcomes based on the same conclusion and observations. One is a sense of hope. One is a sense of hopelessness. Hopefulness, hopelessness. American astronomer Carl Sagan, I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name right, but as I was looking at this subject today, Carl Sagan wrote, as long as there have been humans, we have searched for our place in the cosmos. Where are we? Who are we? This was his conclusion. We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Does that seem very hopeful? Does that sound very uplifting? As you look at words insignificant, humdrum, and forgotten is how he describes the place of mankind in the scope of the natural realm. You see, apart from God's revealed word, the ho- this hopelessness represents the natural reaction to observing the enormity of God's creation. And this is tragic when reflecting on God's greatness and being reminded of his perspective towards you should fill you with hope and purpose. And so that's ultimately the takeaway that I have on Psalm 8 and what it reminds us of that it reminds us of just how much hope the man of faith can have in reveling and being awestruck by just how great his God is. Hence the title, How Majestic Is Your Name? with an exclamation point at the end of it. So let's take a look at Psalm 8. Let's read it first together here. Psalm 8 begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Who have set your glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, 
and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So Lord willing, we'll get through this here tonight and be able to summarize this psalm. But we start with the first observation, which is that God's majesty is revealed through the natural realm. And before we dig very far into that in verse 1 here, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. We need to make one observation before that. It starts with the reminder that biblical faith intrinsically involves a personal view of God. True biblical faith involves, intrinsically involves a personal view of God. You see this with O Lord, our Lord. See, Yahweh which is the word behind Lord there in all caps. Anytime you see that, you know it's God's personal name. So David is crying out to God as a very personal God. He's calling out to him by name. So God's personal name, Yahweh, he cries out to him. And then he says, our Lord. Our reflects the personal aspect of this relationship. David is not speaking about a God who is distant and far away. He's talking about a personal God who is intensely interested in people. He's including himself in that as he speaks or he starts out this poem or this song, this psalm. So you, what's the takeaway there? I keep bringing it up as we've been going through the psalms, but I bring it up in a lot of the passages that we look at. A distant and far away impersonal God is not useful a God who is personal and cares about you individually, wants to live life with you, has undertaken to meet your every need, starting with your need as it related to your sinfulness and, and the division that was caused by your sinfulness as it related to his holiness and how he could make a way to rescue or redeem you from the predicament you were in as a result of your sin. That's very personal. If you believe that, he sent his only son to die in your place. That's how you're put in a right place with him. That You see that you have a need. You're a sinner. You see that God has provided a means of rescue or a means of dealing with your sinfulness. Now, regardless of what the extent of the details you understood about that, that was the only way man could ever be justified before God is to see himself as a sinner and to see God as the exclusive solution to fix that problem or to deal with his sinfulness. That starts at a very personal level. Then, level. then as you read and, and you grow and you talk about a walk of faith or a life of faith, it's all characterized by a personal relationship with a personal God. We won't spend much more on that, but there's an observation to make there. O oh Lord, our Lord. Then you have an excellent reputation. God has an excellent reputation. You read that with how excellent is your name. And many of you who, when you saw this psalm, if, if you're like me and you're musical, the first thing about, about that came across your mind when you were reminded of what this, song co- what this psalm covers is the song that says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And it's a song based off of these exact words. Now, we have the word majestic. Why? Because this word that's translated excellent is also translated majestic in many translations. I would say more have it that way than anything else. Brilliant, some have it. Some have it magnificent. Lord, our Lord, your name is 
excellent, majestic, brilliant, and magnificent. But the underlying word means, a literal translation of the word is broad, large, and powerful. Now think of that as it relates to your personal God. Excellent, majestic, brilliant, magnificent, broad, large, and powerful. That's the kind of God you have. That's his reputation. And when you see this, your name, how excellent or how majestic is your name, your name is referring to his reputation. So that's why we have an excellent reputation. That's how I summarized it. Turn to Proverbs 22 or close. I'll just show you at least one example here that how your name is generally referring to how somebody is known. So a lot of times you talk about your good name is more important to you than anything else. Maintaining what? Your reputation. How are you known? Proverbs 22, verse 1. Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver and gold, but come back to a good name. It's dealing with how you're known, your reputation. And what's God's reputation? His reputation is that he's majestic, he's excellent, he is magnificent. He's broad, large, and powerful. Then you go to the next part of it. How excellent is your name in all the earth? Then additionally, you've set your glory above the heavens. So his majesty is known in all the, all the earth, and it's visible in the heavens themselves. So the earth and the heavens declare God's majesty is the summary of that. God is known because he, cho- he chose or he chooses to make himself known. That's a takeaway you should have there is that God didn't hide himself. God didn't hide his majesty. God didn't hide his excellence. He made it known in all of the earth and in all of the heavens. Wonderful to see that God chose to interact with mankind in a way that was very visible and in a way that's very personal. God's revelation of himself is fundamental to man's expected response. God reveals himself so that we can see who he is. We can compare ourselves to that in a sense, see our hopelessness and our helplessness apart from him intervening in our life to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So when you talk about a response of faith, walking by faith instead of by sight, walking by means of his spirit in the context of the New Testament, not by not by means of the flesh or the direction of the flesh. Walking in dependence on him instead of having an independent mindset. Walking with a vertical focus instead of a horizontal focus. It all comes back to being convinced of just how awesome and majestic and wonderful and excellent your God is. And as you're convinced of that, you'll see him as worthy of your trust and your faith. Just one of the ways that, one of the things that should do that. He has done so in an all-encompassing way through the natural realm. Done done what? He's revealed himself in an all-encompassing way through the natural realm. The idea is people everywhere see how great you are. People everywhere. It wasn't for the sake of animals to observe God's glory and be awestruck by God. It was for man's sake that God made his reputation his excellent reputation, his majesty known in all of the earth and in the heavens. He did it for the observation of man. So people everywhere see how great you are. So in all the earth, all in, in, indicates the completeness of his revelation. Earth, of course, focusing on 
the, where we're walking, the terra firma. Then you talk about you have set your glory above the heavens. There are several ways to take this, but the heavens bear witness to God's glory. So that's one part of it. You have set your glory above the heavens, so the heavens reveal or bear witness to God's glory. You reveal your majesty in the heavens above. Another way to take it is God's glory is greater than the splendor of heaven. So in, in that, the focus would be on the word above. You've set your glory above the heavens, meaning the heavens are magnificent and they're extraordinary when you look at them, but then you see that God is greater than that. And the third way is that God's glory reaches as high as the heavens. Who have set your glory above the heavens or up to the heavens is what some translations have. Now, the heavens bear witness to God's glory. God's glory is greater than the splendor of the heavens. God's glory reaches as high as the heavens. All of those statements are true. Turn to Romans 1.20. I want to show you a similar New Testament passage. Many of you may be familiar with it. But just so we have some page turning. The earth and the heavens declare God's majesty. It's a big part of God's revelation. Now, God revealed himself directly to certain men. And there's instances that are recorded in the Bible about that. God revealed himself through what? Through his written word. As it was communicated, God spoke. He, he breathed every word of scripture through human instruments, but it was God was the author alone. So we have God's revelation through his word. But then we have God's revelation through the natural realm. That God made man, he put man in a place where they couldn't say, I didn't know about you. I didn't know anything about you. He says, no, I made it so evident that none could have any excuse. We read Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are what? Clearly seen. They're not, they're not hidden in a murky kind of a way. They're clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, for what objective or what outcome comes from that? So that they are without excuse. No man is in a position to say, I wasn't aware there was a God. I wasn't aware of my smallness and my frailty and my hopelessness apart from God. God's magnificence was put on full display in the created realm itself in the heavens and in all of the earth. So then we move on to the second part here, verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. You see, God's majesty is revealed through the natural realm, yes, but God's greatness is declared through human beings additionally or also. Now, this, I think, is the most confusing or complicated part of this psalm. I wouldn't say that I'm dogmatic about what I have to say about it here, but this makes sense to me as I sifted through this verse. This word ordained, it carries the idea of establishing something. So God has established his own strength, not, not our strength, but he's established his own strength. He's proved it in some way. Now, it's a way that involves the testimony of human beings as we look at out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you prove or establish your power. And, and so the takeaway that seemed very similar to the New Testament there is this. On one hand, God proves and establishes his strength through his provision for the weak or the helpless. So there's one aspect of it, that God through human frailty shows his own power 
My strength is made perfect through your weakness. It's established. It's proven through your weakness. As I'm the one who's able to undertake to do for you what you could never do for yourself. So that's one aspect to it. And Satan is stunned by the very creation or existence of man or God's care or concern for man. Satan is stunned by that. So when you look at the effect that this has on God's enemies, who are described as the enemy and the avenger, Satan, as he looks at God's care and concern and provision for a weak and feeble mankind, he's absolutely stunned by it. His mouth is silenced, in a sense, by seeing God's grace on display through human beings. So the additional aspect of it is that infants represent the general helplessness of man and the need for God's gracious provision. So man is just being described here by this description of the frailty of the human race, which is found nowhere more obviously than the mouth of babes and nursing infants. So it's a metaphor. It's a, pic- it's a picture of the inadequacy, the insufficiency of mankind, the feebleness of mankind, and their need for God to show his grace, gracious provision and show his strength through his provision for them. See, a baby is absolutely helpless apart from somebody else intervening to provide for them, to care for them, to protect them, to direct them, to nurture them. They can't feed themselves. They can't, they can't take care of themselves in any way. So when you look at babies and infants, you see that picture there. So this is picturing the praise offered by people of faith who have no strength or power in themselves. So out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, what comes? Where he's talking about God being established through the testimony of those that are frail and insignificant, those that are otherwise helpless and weak. So God shows his strength through the testimony of those that are not very... That's the word I'm looking for. They're not very grand. There's nothing special about them. They're not very extraordinary. And God silences the enemies through the testimony of the trophies of his grace. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. Let's turn there too. Because to keep the flow of thought here, you have that God is showing his grandness or his power or his excellence, his majesty, his, how majestic he is, how excellent he is. He's showing that through in all of the earth, He shows that through his creation. And one part of that is the earth part of it. The other part is the heavenly part of that. So naturally, the next part of it is through the creation of human beings. But it's not human beings' grandness or grandeur that is so, that establishes God's majesty. It's human beings' frailty and how undeserving they are of God's love, of God's provision, of God's care. And so that's, out of the mouth of babes and infants, God establishes or he proves his strength, but he proves his strength through showing his grace to those that deserve it so little. They have done nothing to deserve it. And so you read 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame 
the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, if man had anything to glory in, if there was anything awesome or grand about man, they would naturally feel even more temptation to put their focus on themselves. But instead, the smallness of man is what God is trying to show here in verse 2, and that's going to make perfect sense when we come to verse 3. The insignificance of man is what is trying to be established here by David. Again, that's my take on on verse 2 here. God shows just how grand he is by taking notice of something so insignificant, and I guess that's the best I can do there with with verse 2. So then we come to verse 3. God's interest and love for mankind, it's mind-blowing. So let's read 3 through 5. When I consider your heavens, that was one of the evidences of God's grandeur. The other was human beings themselves, the insignificance of human beings, the frailty of human beings as demonstrated through babes and infants. But when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have ordained there, we have again that same word ordained, established, they're given as evidence or proof of God's greatness. What's the, what question does it bring to mind? We have rhetorical questions here. When I consider those things, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So there's this sense of being completely unable to fathom how God being so great could take an interest in something so insignificant. I use the word mind-blowing. The psalmist now confronts the ultimate incongruity that should leave man speechless and awestruck before God. The incongruity is man is incredibly small, but yet God has exalted him and given him glory and honor. As what? As a testimony of him, as a testimony of his grace, as a testimony of his excellence, of his grandeur, of his brilliance, of his largeness and, and his power. That's how. Now, there's at least two aspects to this. In contrast to the vastness, majesty, and greatness of the universe, God is infinitely greater. The heavens are described as merely the work of his fingers. So you think of these rhetorical questions. What's blowing David's mind on one hand is that God is so infinitely great, but the heavens that he made are great in and of themselves. And so as he looks at the heavens and as he looks at creation, David says, this is unbelievable. Have you ever looked up at the night sky yourself and felt that way? This is unbelievable. But then, what's the next step you have to take? You have to say, this is unbelievable. How amazing must the God be who made this? And that's the step we forget sometimes. We're blown away by the evidence, but we forget to track it all the way through to its conclusion. The conclusion of the evidence, the thing that the evidence is pointing to, is that God is unbelievably greater than even the greatness of his created universe, the created world, his creative process. And we can't really even wrap our minds around it. But the point of all of this is, how majestic is your name? How awesome must God be if he's the one who made these things, including 
the grace that he's shown to mankind, the earth and the heavens themselves. But they're described as merely the work of his fingers. Don't, when you read that, don't you think about kids playing with Play-Doh? This, for however awesome it is, this natural realm, it's merely, it's merely the result of putty in God's hands. It's the work of his fingers. He didn't, it didn't take him any kind of effort. He spoke it into existence. Compared to him, it's nothing. Hard to, it's hard to go up to the boundary waters. It's hard to go through the Rocky Mountains. It's hard to go to Hawaii. It's hard to go look at the ocean. Hard to look at the night sky and think this is nothing. This is absolutely nothing compared to my God. And I think that's why God gave it to us. Because he, he knew how difficult it was going to be to relate to or understand the full measure of his majesty. So he showed us it in a way we could process to some extent. And then he said, I hope you know that I'm infinitely greater than that. With what purpose in mind? That you'd then ask the next question, would you trust me? Could you have faith in my ability to undertake in your life? Could you have confidence in my ability to provide for your every need? Could you be convinced that I'm on your side and that I mean everything that I'm doing in your life for your good? Would you trust me to lead? Would you quit trying to think you know better than me? Would you accept my word as something that would be helpful to you, that would benefit you? Would you take it by faith and just say, God, you're so infinitely great. How could I argue with you? Why would I take a prideful perspective that I know better than you do? But yet we do it all the time. We justify different ways of rebelling and rejecting him, doing what's contrary to his plan, his purpose, his will and his word. And we we figure out ways to do that and to justify it. And he's being reminded here that when you really consider God's majesty and how big the natural world is, and you know that he's the one who made it as if it were putty in his fingers, wouldn't you think, wouldn't you be convicted as to how goofy it is to try to do this apart from him, live life apart from him, direct your own steps, direct your own paths, try to provide for yourself, worry about things you have no control over anyway? Couldn't you just trust me? Couldn't you just give it over to me? That's sort of the, that's the first thing there. Now the second thing is, in terms of what should come away from observing the, God's creation and even observing what he's done with the frailty of humanity, his grace on full display with mankind. The second thing should be, in contrast to the magnificent, seemingly infinite celestial bodies, is unremarkable, finite, helpless, broken, flawed and sinful man. So on one hand, it should remind you of the vastness of God, how, how big he really is, how great he really is, how awesome it really is. But it should also, as you look at these things, like David is here, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, it should cause you when you're asking these questions, what is man that you are mindful of him? What he's really saying there is, as I contrast the magnificent creation. Mankind seems very unremarkable. 
Mankind seems very finite, though I see the infinite nature of the stars and the heavens. They go on, they go on without end. Man seems helpless. Man is broken. Man is flawed. And man is sinful. That's the conclusion that should be reached by, in comparison to God's creation, especially as it relates to the celestial bodies that are being described here. So what is, what is David doing? He's communicating his amazement that God would take interest in man with those two questions. In contrast to, these, in contrast to this, who is? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You see, despite the reality that man pales in comparison to God's greatness, David recognizes that God loves him immensely and is intensely interested in him. He just doesn't understand why that would be. Now, if you do, tell me. See, this is amazing truth that is extremely difficult to understand. Why would a God so great be interested in care about and love something so small. And you're going to see that David effectively, he says, this is true. This is inescapable. And I know it based on the personal relationship that I have with God, but I don't understand it. And I don't know that there is any way to understand it. I think it is beyond our reason in many ways. It reminds me of a song called, Who Am I? You see, it's amazing truth. It's very difficult to understand. Accepting and understanding the ramifications of this reality, though, is fundamental and foundational to any response or walk of faith. If you don't accept this, if you don't understand this, that despite being unable to explain it, God is interested in you. The God that made that, the sky above us, he's interested in you. He cares about you. He loves you. There's no walk of faith apart from coming to grips with that, regardless of whether you can understand it or not. So again, this song, Who Am I? It says, Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still you hear me when I'm calling. Lord, you catch me when I'm falling, and you've told me who I am. I am yours. Now, I don't know if you could say it much better than that. If you can, you're a much better poet than I am. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to, mo- care to know my name? And that's what David is communicating here. But as he communicates an inability to process why God would do that or why God would love us so, he still accepts it fully though. He is encouraged by, he finds hope in the fact that this is true regardless of whether we can explain it or not. You see, God chose to exalt man in his grace. Now, why? We'll have to wait to find that out. But yet he chose to exalt him anyway. And it was all by his grace. You see this here as we keep, we come to this, the end of verse 5 here. 
No, all of verse 5. For you have made him... So he asked the rhetorical questions. There isn't an answer to them. But he says, you have made him, man, a little bit lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. He says, I don't understand it, but I know this is true. See, there's nothing special about man that warranted this treatment. That's why you can say, this is a testimony to God's grace. Man didn't exalt himself either. God is the one who exalted him. See, God's creation of man is described as one of glory and honor. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And he's said to have been made a little lower than the angels, or probably more accurately, a little lower than God himself. Not equal with God, not equal with the creator, having been a created being. Lower than the creator, lower than God. And the reason I say that about probably more accurately God should be the translation instead of angels, is just that this word Elohim, that is, it can refer to angels, but it's not its main meaning. In fact, the word is used 2,580 times in the Old Testament. So if you're taking notes, no, sorry, 2,599 times is how many times Elohim is used in the Old Testament. 2,599. Now of that, 2,580 of those times are translated as God. So that only leaves 19. So of the remaining 19 uses, this is the only time it's translated as angels. Why that is, I think there's an argument made about the way that it was quoted or paraphrased by the New Testament authors. It's used one time in the New Testament, and in that instance, the author, uh, the speaker, the just I don't, don't remember who it was, but they, I believe, use the Greek word for angels. But also remember that when you look at New Testament quotes of Old Testament scriptures, they're nearly never word for word. They're always loose translations as if, almost as if, kind of almost like I quote the Bible sometimes. What I mean by that is I learned lots of verses over the course of a lifetime. And I don't remember them with exact detail sometimes. And so fragments, bits and pieces, the general idea is communicated, but not the exact word-for-word translation. So it's not a big point. I just want you to know that most, most would take the view that this is really saying, you made man a little lower than the creator God himself, um, not specifically angels. So you have crowned him, man, with glory and honor. And, and I hope the takeaway that you see here by the way that this psalm is being structured is that man's value, purpose, and glory is only seen in light of God's glory. Man has no glory, purpose, or value independent of God. That's why he starts with all of the focuses on God. That's why the Bible, correctly understood, never puts the focus on man. It always puts the focus on God. Now, when, when the focus shifts to man, it's always as man as man relates to God. Not man in a vacuum or man independent of God, but man in association with or in relation to the God who made him. And so I think that's a great reminder of how easy it is to up, exalt or uplift man outside of the context that anything about man is only the pure, purely the product of God's grace. And I think Paul says it best when he says, I am what I am, and this is in reference to something that's admirable. 
Anything admirable about me, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. There's nothing that you could glory or exalt or lift up about me but for God's grace, but for, in the case of Paul, church age, the Spirit of God producing it in and through me. He has sort of the perspective there. Now when you keep going with this, so God chose to exalt man in his grace, but God's provision for mankind is amazing. Let's look at it, verses 6 through 8. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. See, how has God honored and glorified man, exalted man? He did that by putting man under him but over creation. Under him but over creation. Man was created as God's own representative on earth over creation. All living creatures were to be under man. Unfortunately, because of sin, that dominion has never fully been realized or since the fall of man. But still, there's a, a sense that it remains intact, but just at a lessened, in a lessened way than it was originally. You see, man enjoys an exalted position over the rest of creation. God, what's, what's interesting about this is that the focal point of creation in term, after the creator himself is on mankind and what God's plan is for man. It's not on the, created, the creation itself or the creatures that God created besides man. Now, uh, were those also made by the same creator? Answer, yes. But is that God's focus? No. God's focus is on people. He's revealed that in his word over and over again. That's what's ironic about man who still manages to worship the very creation he was given dominion over. Man is worshiping the moon and the stars. In different places in the world, that's true in our country too, but to a little bit lesser degree, but it's becoming more and more popular. Mother Earth, worshiping Mother Earth when man was given dominion over the earth. It would make more sense to just worship man like most people do. Worship self like most people do. That makes sense. But it's goofy to think that man is worshiping God's creation when man was intended to be the, the pinnacle of that creation and have dominion over the rest of it. You see, man still manages to worship himself instead of the God who loves him, provided for him, and created him. That's equally mind-boggling. It makes more sense, to some extent, so I said equally. It makes a little bit more sense than that you'd worship the creation God made you to have dominion over. But then when you're worshiping yourself and you're just ignorant and avoiding altogether the smallness of yourself and compared to the majesty of God, that makes no sense. To worship yourself instead of the one who made you, the one who's provided for you, the one who loves you, the one who's infinitely greater than you in such a way that you can't even fathom, you can't even answer the simplest question, which is, why would God even care about you? And yet you're going to worship self? Now, are you going to do that intentionally? Usually not. Most religions that put the focus on self and self-betterment, self-improvement, that person thinks they're humble, thinks they're honoring God. I spoke to a lady just today at length at the coffee shop about this who claims to be a Christian who spends all of her time there studying and memorizing Bible verses. She would put most of us to shame when it comes to what she knows about the Bible in terms of memorizing the verse. 
verses, but she doesn't understand the message that's being communicated. Because she, see, she says, in, on one hand, that only through humility could you ever understand or accept the, the message, the good news, the, saving, the, sa- the message of salvation that the Bible communicates. On the other hand, she says she wants to stand before the Lord on the basis of what she's done for God and the fact that she put Jesus first. All that comes out of her mouth, the focus of it is putting Jesus first. If you don't put him first, then you're not going to be saved. And I said, do you see who the spotlight is shining on there, though? you see the focus, who the focus of that is? I said, here you're taking something that's mostly true, that God wants you to, in light of his grace, and in light of what he's done for you, and through the power of his spirit working inside of you, he wants you to live a life that would lift him up, that you would live to shine the spotlight on him, that you would give him the preeminence. Not to save yourself, but because you realize that you are saved. You realize what he has done for you. You've accepted as a free gift the salvation that he guarantees exclusively without any regard for what you can do for him. Now, when you are impacted by his great love for you and have a love response back toward him that says, in effect, I love you because of how much you love me. I'm compelled, I'm motivated by your love. I'm humble enough to see that I can't live a life that would bring you glory apart from you working in and through me. Then that person would have a life that would lift Jesus up first or put Jesus first, but not because they're trying to mechanically or artificially save themselves by trying to make up a life or live out a life that puts Jesus first. You think you're putting Jesus first when, in fact, you're putting yourself first. I don't know if she'll be back to the coffee shop anytime soon, but... Pray that she does. I've talked to her five, probably five times over the last three years. We haven't made any real headway other than I keep telling her, are you sure you want to go stand at the gates of eternity and put the focus on you instead of on the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? Are you sure that's how you want to go about it? I will say that what's interesting about what a big God we have, we're talking about how majestic is your name, that because we were getting so animated toward each other somebody else was overhearing that and came up and wanted to join in the conversation he saw that he saw that there was you know some dis- disagreement taking place so he backed off and, and went and sat at his own table after she left though he came over and I was able to share the gospel with him and I'll say this that God has a way of using everything for his glory you know, and he was way more open, far more receptive to that gospel message than she was. And it came from having a conversation with her again that, you know, on the surface level, God is the one working inside of people. You don't know what he's doing. But on the surface level, you'd say, this is getting us nowhere. But yet at the same time, that's how he chose to use that today. Uh, to God be the glory, great things he has done. So we end with verse 9. So God's provision for mankind is amazing. God chose to exalt man in his grace. Sorry, we're going out of order here. God's interest in love for mankind is mind-blowing. God chose to exalt man in his grace. We saw that there in verse, verse, verse 5, verse 6 through 8. God's provision for mankind is amazing. And now we end with man's response to these realities should be obvious. Let's read what man's response should be. David ends the way he began. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This should 
be the only response you would have to recognizing and appreciating these truths that are being communicated here in the rest of the psalm. To see God's splendor and majesty and greatness, to see that despite all of that, he chose to love something as insignificant as human beings and provide for them in such an amazing, gracious way. The inescapable conclusion you should reach is this. Put an exclamation point after it. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That's the conclusion you should reach. You see, David rightfully stood amazed and put God's center stage as he ended, as he ended this psalm. He put the spotlight on God. He said, how, again, how excellent or how majestic is your name in all the earth. So you think about that title, how majestic is your name. There are really two takeaways from this psalm. One is that God is indescribably majestic. And the second is that he cares for you. Those are the two things David really rehashes here in this psalm. God is indescribably majestic, so much so that I can't even understand it. And he cares for me, and I can't understand that either. But that should fill you with hope as you find your value in him. It should fill you with hope as you find your purpose in him. It should fill you with hope as you find your direction in him. Our God, this great loves you, and he's intensely interested in your life. Wow. I hope that provides you hope. I hope you're not like Carl Sagan, using words, focusing on things that are so depressing, having a mindset that is focused on insignificant, humdrum, and forgotten. When you think of what God thinks of you, how he sees you, and how he cares for you, Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time that we could spend together. Pray that we would be awestruck by you. As we're touched by and reminded of your majesty, pray that that would cause us to trust you more. That we would see if you're so majestic and you're so gracious toward man, when man is insignificant and undeserving of any of that, that we would just be blown away by it in such a way that you would get our focus off of ourselves and get our focus off of the things of this world, and you would get our focus back on you, that we would trust you and let, let you undertake in our lives to direct in a way that is impossible while we're trying to steer the ship. Pray that we would be also so awestruck by you that we would want to tell others about you. Pray that we would even pray for the boldness to do that, that we would be on the lookout for opportunities to proclaim the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you for this time together again in Jesus' name. Amen.